with commercial interests. Dr. Guy will disclose his relationships in his presentation. If you are here in person, you will receive the QR code at the end of the session. If you have a question for the presenter, please hold until the Q&A segment. Online viewers may type questions into the chat and we'll read them at the end. And now Dr. Samady would like to introduce our speaker, Dr. Guy. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's a pleasure to see everyone this morning. And it's, it's particularly um, a great honor to present our, our very own uh, Dr. Sloan Guy, who's one of our cardiac surgeons here at Northeast Georgia Health System. Um, so many of you have, have met Sloan. Um, just by way of background, um, he, he earned his um, well, he completed his surgical residency and cardiothoracic surgery fellowship at um, the, the uh, noted famous University of Pennsylvania. Um, he has then uh, had extensive training, passion and expertise in robotic cardiac surgery. Um, in fact, Sloan led the thoracic uh, surgery task force for robotic cardiac surgery that's um, really a task force focused on teaching, expanding robotic cardiac surgery in the United States. He led that task force for the last seven years. Um, and I think most of us uh, recognize that he is a, an international leader in robotic mitral valve repair. Um, in addition to his uh, work and passion in this area, he also um, was a former wide receiver for Wake Forest football. Um, and that's especially important to me as my, my daughter goes to Wake. So we've compared stories. I think he's three, four generations of Wake graduates. Um, he also is a former Lieutenant Colonel of the US Army and served three tours as combat surgeon in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Sloan has had faculty appointments at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco, at Cornell Medicine um, and at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. Most recently, he came to us from Philadelphia where he was professor of surgery and clinical director of the cardiac surgery program at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. Um, and um, our team of cardiac surgeons here are absolutely delighted um, as well as our cardiologist that he joined us back in November um, to lead our minimally invasive and robotic cardiac surgery program. So we've asked Sloan to come up and talk to us a little bit about this area of passion. Um, so come on up and tell us about robotic mitral repair in North Georgia. Thank you, Habib. Um, I'm very uh, grateful um, to have this opportunity to share what has been my passion for the better part of 20 years, uh, despite a lot of other crazy stuff I've done like Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, I'll tell you in my four or five months here, I've been treated so well uh, and really feel like I found my home here. And I wanna thank all of you uh, for that. So what we're gonna talk to um, about today is robotic mitral valve repair. Uh, these are my relationships. Um, 
with industry, which are primarily designed to help me stay up on the latest and greatest technology that's out there. Uh, my background we've already uh, talked about, but uh, one thing that I think I would add to it is that, you know, uh, people think of me as someone from Philadelphia because I did a lot of training in there. But in fact, I'm from a very, very small town uh, of Elkin, North Carolina, which makes Gainesville look like a metropolis, believe it or not. And um, uh, so for me, returning to the South was uh, really coming home in many ways and uh, reminds me a lot of where I grew up and, and I think where I belong. Um, just want to share with you um, what's going on in cardiac surgery at large. Cardiac surgery is an extremely tumultuous field right now. Um, there was a lot of innovation in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, then for the next few years, um, uh, really, there was not a lot of innovation, but, but very good surgeons sort of perfected the field and got excellent results. I mean, it was unimaginable that you'd have a 1% to 2% mortality rate with cardiac surgery back in the early 80s. Uh, but things are changing. And here, here's kind of how I think about the future. One will be big programs. There are a lot of 100-case programs out there, even 50-case programs. I don't think that's going to last. Either the payers uh, are not going to allow it or um, quality and, and financial uh, elements are going to dictate that really big, high-quality programs are going to be the future. Uh, the second would be of the five or six Bs is what I call big cases. And unfortunately, big cases are hard to do, and they require what I call big case surgeons to do it. And there's a dwindling number of those that can handle, you know, that third time redo, uh, that case they can't get a tavern, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And um, all of us, um, uh, like I see Kyle here in the audience, all of us really are facing uh, some really, really difficult cases, much harder, frankly, than those guys did back in the early 80s. Um, and then boutique surgery and robotics, what I do is sort of a, one of those niches, uh, but there's others, TAVR, transcatheter mitral, uh, tr uh, transcatheter thoracic stent grafting, et cetera, and then big exodus. And that's something to really understand. I've always told, told cardiology groups when I speak to them that one of the biggest problems in their field will be uh, access to high quality surgeons who can do big cases, boutique surgery, et cetera, because there's a big exodus of highly skilled baby boomer surgeons that are really walking off the playing field right now. And it's becoming a real issue. Um, lots of programs are sort of desperate um, uh, for good surgery at this point. And I think it's a real testament to the leadership of the hospital, um, uh, Habib and my partners for having uh, been very aggressive to try to get some high quality surgeons here. We just recruited Karen Gersh, who's a very experienced senior surgeon who brings a lot of skills in here, but it's not a given um, that you'll get good surgeons at a place. Big shortage of well-trained, highly skilled younger surgeons. Training in cardiac surgery is highly variable today. And I think it's fair to say that most of us in the field believe that about 70% of new graduates are not prepared to do independent heart surgery, even at a basic level, completely by themselves the day they finish training. That was not the case when um, Taryn and I trained, uh, but it is the case now. Now, there are exceptions to that. There are good training programs. Um, but, uh, but that's really unique to cardiac surgery. There's very few specialties where people come out and just can't perform. 
Um, cardiac surgery is one of those fields that's so difficult that that is the case. There's some things that we're doing in training and education that I think will improve that, uh, but, um, but it's still a, a bit of a rough time right now. And then uh, big teams. And this is the concept of the heart team. Now, the truth of the matter is the heart team concept where you have cardiologists, cardiac surgery, imaging people, virtually whoever else needs to be involved, infectious disease, et cetera. These have been around for decades. I mean, any good doctor works collaboratively with other team members to come up with the best solution, putting together expertise um, and, uh, and knowledge uh, and caring about a patient to come up with the best result. But we've sort of codified it in today's lingo that these are, these are called heart teams. And it's really, the, it's really um, the future, although again, it's been around for a long time uh, with good people. Now, these are my partners. I think we have a very good front line. We, we're very um, collaborative. You know, it's interesting, Clifton, uh, I probably ran across him without knowing it in 1989 when I first saw my first heart surgery. Um, I was observing a guy named Francis Robichek at Caroline's Medical Center, where believe it or not, I was a hospital administrator intern for the summer. <laughs> and, uh, and he was a fellow at that time. And it's interesting because, as I'm going to tell you, I've grappled with a lot of very powerful surgeons in the United States over my passion for minimally invasive. There's sort of an anti-minimally invasive group out there. And his, his, his mentor was one of them. And I actually sparred with him at the national level once. Uh, but it, it shows you what a thoughtful guy he is, that he, he really cares about patients and he recognizes the value of minimally invasive. Uh, we've got Dr. Thompson, who does um, ventricular assist devices, transcatheter work, and, and great general cardiac surgery. I found uh, Kyle to be very inspiring. He once told me, you know, I don't want to be famous like you, but um, what I want to do is provide good service to my patients and make sure I can do good by them and know what I need to do to take, uh, uh, take good care of them. He, he's probably more valuable to the world than guys like me, truthfully. Uh, and then Karen comes to us um, with an incredible background, um, most recently from South Carolina. And, uh, you know, this uh, saga of her coming here started because she was calling me and she was not, in not the most friendly place. And we were talking about it. And, and I said, well, you know, it's really good here. I mean, I come in every morning. They give me free breakfast. They're nice to me. I, I do a case. The nurse brings me a Coke. You don't see that very, very often these days. And I'm like, why don't you just come here? And uh, here she is. <laughs> um, so this is what we're talking about, truly endoscopic mitral valve repair. And what you need to understand is that the fact that we use only eight millimeter ports to do a mitral, uh, we have one this morning, is truly unique. There is no other program in the world right now that's down to that, uh, to that, to those size incisions. And, uh, and, and I plan to go even, even smaller. There's some that are, you know, close on my heels, but, but none at that, at that level yet. So the first question is why do robotics? You know, what's the, what's the big deal? Well, this is one reason you can see the valve. Now I was a wide receiver in college. Now, would you all, got, would you all agree that to be a great wide receiver for you football fans out there, you need to have good hands to catch the ball. Everyone agree with that? You're absolutely wrong. It's not the hands, it's the eyes. If you can see that ball, you can catch it. So this is a lesson I learned very early on. Being able to see in surgery is critical. And you can see here that, I mean, I could literally probably teach you how to repair this particular valve if you give me a couple of hours, because you can see it really well and you can see what needs to be done. 
Now, this is the cultural shift that we've seen in cardiac surgery. When I started this thing in 1989, the whole emphasis was on quality and safety. Have the patient survive with minimal complications and solve their problem. And would we not all agree that that still should be the highest priority? However, if you look at the bottom left-hand corner, you see Lyndon Johnson on the steps of Bethesda Naval Medical Center with a huge cochlear incision, okay? Now, ironically, the first operation that I ever scrubbed in on was an open gallbladder. There was a surgeon named Ken Sharp at Vanderbilt, and it was in 1989. And he said there were these folks trying to take out gallbladders with little scopes, and they were charlatans. They should probably have their medical licenses taken away. There have been some complications, and this was morally wrong. And he was very adamant about it. And the, the incision he made to take out that gallbladder was about this big, I kid you not. And I'm sure that hospital, that patient was in the hospital for two to three weeks, endured unbelievable agony, et cetera. And of course, by the end of my general surgery training uh, around 2001, uh, it was standard of care to take it out through little scopes. But there were pioneers. And interestingly enough, they, the first one was done at a place called Baptist Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee, done by private practice folks. So it's not always the big universities that are doing the, the most cutting edge stuff. And of course, there's the sternotomy. Um, now, this is the new equation. So, you know, the patient experience matters. We all know about that, how the patient feels about what they went through. We're all trying to make them happy every day um, and feel good about their experience. And that's a tough one because the truth of the matter is patients were happier in 1950 than they are today because expectations are much higher. But nonetheless, it wasn't a priority in 1950. It is now. Um, in minimally invasiveness, so patients can get back to work more quickly and decrease cost. So the value equation is, is, is a lot more complicated. Um, this is how I see the future of robotic cardiac surgery. I think there'll be improved training. Right now, training's sort of haphazard. Um, I did uh, some work uh, when I was a fellow at University of Pennsylvania. It was very rudimentary um, uh, cardi cardi cardiac robotics. I spent some time uh, with Doug Murphy at St. Joe's when I got out of the Army. Uh, that was really important. And a guy named Sardir Srivastava, who was the leader in robotic coronaries at the time. There's a new generation more open to it. My son got his first iPhone when he was five years old. Uh, of course, he wants to be a lawyer, but um, hopefully there's some out there that want to be doctors. Um, endovascular approaches are huge. Um, it's, it's a big part of the future, probably bigger than robotics, although I think there will be robotic catheter-based systems within 10 or 20 years uh, for structural heart. Asynaortic aneurysm procedures, that's one of my goals, is to do aneurysm surgery with the robot, aortic valve repair, and then centers of excellence. Now, taking on the establishment is not for the light of heart. You know, you read the history books um, and you think all oh, these folks that did great things are so wonderful. I just left here from Thomas, uh, left four here from Thomas Jefferson University Hospital where the first open heart surgery with a heart lung machine was done on May 6, 1953. And that sounds all wonderful. What they don't tell you is that he killed the next three patients, gave up on it, gave up on heart surgery altogether and sent the specs to Mayo Clinic. Um, and a guy named John Kirkland who took it from there. He basically, you know, couldn't do it anymore. And there's a, there's a lot of stories like that. I've, I've not been at that level, but I've definitely taken on some pretty heavy hitters. This is me at the Society of Thoracic Surgeons a number of years ago debating Dave Adams, um, arguably the king of mitral valve surgery in the United States and the chief of Mount Sinai. 
and I went head to head with him, even comparing him to an angry taxi cab driver being mad over Uber. And of course, I'm the Uber driver in that equation. And, um, and you know, at the time, he was president of the American Association of Thoracic Surgery, huge guy. And I don't think anyone had ever sort of, you know, taken him on like that. And I don't think I could take a guy like that on in a public setting with 2,000 colleagues watching me if I didn't believe passionately that I was right about this. And I know that I'm right. Minimally basic, truly minimally basic surgery gets patients out of the hospital more quickly, and it does matter. I also debated uh, Mike Acker, who is um, a guy that I trained with at the University of Pennsylvania, who's a big believer in full sternotomy surgery. And he made the statement, well, five years after, who cares, right? If the mitral repair is the same, who cares? What, what he fails to realize is that that initial recovery period does matter to families. I mean, anyone here in the audience who's actually had surgery knows that that is incredibly important. Now, this is an important concept here, incisions for mitral valve surgery, because there is a lot of stuff that's called minimally invasive that's not as minimally invasive as you think. There's, of course, the full sternotomy, and there's nothing wrong with the full sternotomy when appropriate. It still needs to happen. There's many sternotomies, many thoracotomies, sometimes not so many. Sometimes, you know, even some very prominent, famous institutions in our country will make an incision about this long uh, to do mitral valve surgery. Uh, and in that case, it's basically an operation that was done uh, back in the 1960s. So if you send your patient for a thoracotomy that big, you're essentially teleporting that patient back to the 60s to get an operation. And that is, um, I mean, there are good surgeons that do it, but it's not, it's not uh, state of the art by any stretch, and they're not necessarily going to recover any more quickly. Then there's folks that added the, uh, add the robot um, uh, the um, uh, basically using the same thoracotomy or mini thoracotomy and you bring the robot in, which makes it a little easier and I'll show you why. And then what I do, endoscopic robotic, which again was a concept I got from, uh, from Doug Murphy. So this is a guy from here, which I think a lot of you may already know about, but he was discharged on uh, post-op day one, which I'm certain was the first patient in Georgia. I can't imagine anyone else has been... Um, crazy enough to do that or be able to do that because of lack of pain. He was able to leave the hospital on day one. I told him to stick around for a week uh, in Gainesville, but he decided to fly back to Georgia. On day four, he calls me and he says that he walked two miles and he's slightly short of breath. Is that a problem? And I'm like, no. I mean, a lot, most people are still in the hospital at that point. And then day five, he, he was playing golf. Now, this certainly is not every patient, but it shows you what's possible in a young, you know, healthy surgical candidate. This is a little bit about the history of robotic surgery. If you look at the top left-hand corner, you'll see the original surgical robots. This is a place called SRI International in Menlo Park, California. It was The robot was developed under a, um, a research project with the Department of Defense, uh, uh, DARPA and NASA. And the idea was to do remote telesurgery. It turned out to be sort of worthless for that, at least at the moment, because we didn't have the connectivity like 5G. I think it will be revisited actually. Uh, however, um, uh, a, a very innovative guy, Fred Mall, uh, found out about it and he started a company called Intu Intuitive Surgical. And that's how, you know, the, the Da Vinci robot was born, which you see several iterations of it on the right side. There was also another robot in the bottom left, uh, Computer Motion, uh, but um, that ultimately they collapsed and there was sort of one dominant multi-purpose robot for a long time. 
What many of you may not realize is that there is absolutely an explosion of robotic systems, new robotic systems in development in the last five years. J&J uh, &J, uh, is getting into it, um, uh, Hinatori in Japan, Medtronic, Cambridge Medical Robotics, Sudhir Srivastava, who used to be with me at St. Joe's, is now in India. He started this company, SSI, uh, in India, which is the first Indian robotic company. And, uh, and they've actually, I think, done a, over 100 cases so far. So um, we're going to absolutely see a lot of robotic surgical systems coming up, but you're also going to see robots in your daily lives. Who here has a robot in their house, like a Roomba? Anybody? Yeah, I love those things. I, I have a couple of them. And uh, there's going to be more. I'm convinced that by the time I'm elderly, which unfortunately is getting closer and closer, um, I'm probably going to be cared for by a robotic caregiver. I have no doubt about it at all. So robotics is going to be a big thing, uh, that without a doubt. Uh, and these are the big players uh, currently uh, in the United States, uh, but uh, and there are various forms of development. So beyond the hype, and there is hype, you know, hey, robots are cool, right? But there, what it, beyond the hype, what does robotics really add? One is it adds seven degrees of freedom to these little teeny instruments that can go in these seven millimeter ports. And, um, and that's much better than sort of long straight shafted, you know, two-dimensional instruments that we would typically use. So it, it, you have this, this uh, motion of your robotic hand that is tremendous. Uh, and I sit comfortably at the console next to the patient, which uh, has some benefits too. You know, it's a lot easier day for me to sit down in a relaxed chair doing my uh, robotic um, work. Um, and easier for me translates probably into better for the patient. And, and also I can probably do it longer. Um, high definition 3D camera. So the camera actually has two cameras at the tip. So you actually get depth vision. You can see depth and, uh, and it's very high definition. So you can see uh, really exceptionally well and you can zoom in and zoom out. And then these small ports. And this number on this slide is a little out of date. This was back when I was doing 12 to 30 millimeter working ports. As I mentioned, we're down to eight millimeters now. Just to put that in perspective, that's about the diameter of the pen in your pocket right now. So these are incredibly small incisions. There's a lot of evidence for robotic mitral valve repair, okay? It, uh, from Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, et cetera. It emulates open techniques. It's applicable to complex pathologies. Um, you know, we've done some incredibly complex cases here already um, that I think would be um, uh, more difficult in some cases to do with open surgery. So it's not like it's only for simple cases. Uh, equivalent or superior quality, uh, both in my hands and national, and national reports, there's no doubt it improves the patient experience. It's safe and it's cost effective. We do have to get some stuff purchased up front like a robot, which is not cheap. And there's some increased operating room costs, but that is offset uh, in the operating room. I'll show you some data on that. Robotic repair is as durable as open repair. And you would expect that because it's not any different than open repair. It's the same. If I do an open mitral valve repair this morning, I'm actually got a robotic mitral valve repair, but if I was doing it open, I would do the exact same repair that I'm planning to do robotically. Uh, a few different ways in which we get there, but it's essentially the same uh, the same repair. Now, this is an important slide to understand my role here, and that is the volume quality um, continuum with mitral valve surgery. One of the biggest problems in mitral valve surgery has been 
that patients and referring cardiologists sometimes do not realize that mitral valve repair is not a commodity. Um, and so if you look at, this is data from the New York State database, a friend of mine, Joanna Chikwe, where she looked at basically volume versus repair rate. Of course, repair rate was higher, reoperation rate was lower, deaths were lower, and uh, the cutoff was about 25 repairs per year. Some would argue closer to 50. I would argue 100, but, but for sure uh, around 50, there's an there's a, uh, inflection curve. So this really matters. The problem is in the United States, the average number of mitral valve surgeons, uh, mitral valve procedures done by surgeons about four to five per year with a repair rate around 40%. And that's, um, that's just not good. So it's becoming more of a subspecialty. This is the cost data. I think I see a couple of admin types in the room. So you should uh, realize that there is an increased cost in the OR, but this is offset if you can get the patients out early. So like that patient that we sent out on day one, um, you know, that, that's, that's a huge contribution to the hospital uh, because the reimbursement for that patient assumes they're gonna be in the hospital for a week. Um, this is the sternotomy approach. And again, I, I will say that in the operating room yesterday, I did a robotic mitral and I was quoted when I looked at the sternal saw there, that this is still one of my best friends and it is because I still believe that safety comes first. And if there's problems in the OR, I do not hesitate to become the most old fashioned heart surgeon there is. Um, I'm very much that in my soul when I need to be. Uh, but, but it's to be avoided because patients don't like it. And we, for years, we made fun of interventional cardiologists like Habib. You know, the, the story in our profession was, well, he probably will go to the patient and say, well, listen, you know, I can put this little stent with this little teeny catheter and I'll be good. You go home tomorrow. Or Dr. Guy can come in here with his big rusty hacksaw and just saw you wide open. Which would you prefer? <laughs> and so we used to make fun of them. But, um, but the truth of the matter is they were right. You know, if you can if you can achieve similar quality and outcomes as a sternotomy, you should avoid it. It's it's not that great. Now, if you talk to surgeons that do mostly sternotomies, they're going to tell you it's not that big a deal. Well, sure, it's not that big a deal for them because they spend you know a couple of minutes with the patient every day till they leave the hospital, and then maybe a couple of minutes in clinic. So I've never known a single surgeon to have pain from a sternotomy unless they had one, and the ones that did will tell you it's pretty rough. You know, this is a, the one study I could find out there on looking at sternotomy recovery specifically. And I was kind of shocked to see that basically nearly a half of folks still have pain a year after surgery. And if you talk to any practicing cardiologist, they're going to tell you a very different story than the surgeons will. The sternotomy is not a fun incision. So how do we do it? So one of the big arguments against robotics is you don't need a robot um, with these size incisions. This is a port access case um, where basically you're making a thoracotomy uh, with or without rib spreading. And most people do spread the ribs actually at some point uh, with certainly with a lot of patients. Um, and um, you, know, you might add a camera to this to make it easier, but the reality is that these patients actually have more pain than a sternotomy. It, it has value um, uh, cosmetically. And of course you don't have any sternal wound infections but it's not actually that minimally invasive and it's not that different from that 1965 operation. Um, and, and what they don't often tell you is they've made a big incision between the rib spaces there. Now there are great surgeons that can do it without rib spreading in, in some patients, uh, but not all. 
contrast this to what I do, which is just eight millimeter ports which slip between the ribs. Uh, we also freeze the nerves, which helps cut down on the pain. Um, and believe it or not, we've done uh, two cases. These were the least invasive, uh, not here, but in Philadelphia, these were the least invasive mitral valve repairs done in the history of human beings. Uh, and we did it with absolutely no working port. So if you look at this diagram here, we recently just published our first case, uh, but essentially there's just the four robotic ports and that's it. And this, is, this was even inconceivable to my robotic mentors who just came, how did you do that? And, you know, I'm not going to go through the details, but it's, it's possible and it's, it's where uh, we're going. We're looking at single port robotics eventually and all sorts of things. So this is what it looks like in the operating room. We're doing a case this morning and this is what we, you'll see if you come. If you were to come, you see the four robotic ports for the right arm, the left arm, the camera, and the atrial retractor, and then the eight millimeter air seal port. The air seal port is kind of a good example of the way I operate. Uh, if you poll a group of a thousand heart surgeons, they won't even know what the air seal port is. Literally never heard of it. Um, it's a port that allows you to go in and out of the port without losing inso CO2 insufflation, which creates working space and evacuates smoke. <laughs> Um, whereas it's commonly used in other specialties like general thoracic or um, abdominal or pelvic surgery. And so I've made a career of keeping an eye on other surgeons and learning from them and being humble and realizing that in some cases they've gone beyond our specialty and just, you know, borrowing those ideas from them and using them. So I was the first person in the world to use the air seal port. There's a few others. I recently took the team to the Heart Hospital in Plano, Texas, the team here from Gainesville, just to learn from another big program. And I was pleased to see that the surgeon there, Rob Smith, had adopted my port. And that, uh, that, that made me very happy. Uh, this, we also use percutaneous cannulation. So um, uh, one of the problems with cutting down on the femoral artery and vein is this thing called lymphocytes. It's something people don't talk about. It happens about six or 7% of the time. And it is a nightmare when it occurs because you've done this incredibly minimally invasive operation. And now they've got a little grapefruit, grapefruit in their groin and it's hard to deal with. And you'll hear surgeons say, oh, I don't have any of those, but you know, they're, it's just not true. It, does, it happens to all of us, no matter what technique and percutaneous eliminates that. Well, how do we get that? How do we learn how to do that from Taver, from hanging out with our cardiology colleagues and, uh, you know, learning how to do this percutaneously. We also cannulate under fluoroscopy. So when I put these big cannulas up, I don't do it blindly like most surgeons. I use a fluoroscope to make sure I know where those cannulas go, because every now and then, rarely, but it happens, they go to the wrong place. This is sort of what the setup looks like after I put the ports in the chest and I've cannulated. And again, you see no open incisions anywhere. Now it takes a, a, a dedicated heart team and we really have a great team here. I was very lucky. Uh, and actually one of the reasons I took this job was because one of my um, team members had been with me at St. Joe's, Sid, and he had actually helped teach me some of the basics of uh, endoscopic robotic surgery, uh, along with one of his partners down there and, and Doug Murphy. And, and Sid was here, and I knew that, that he would be a great person to be here as my bedside assistant. But we have uh, tr some tremendous anesthesiologists. Uh, normally, I say one surgeon for job security, but I brought Karen here, so I guess 
I guess, I, I guess, uh, I guess that uh, maybe my job security is not as, as, as good as it is where I'm, there's just one of us. But, but I think Karen and I will complement each other very well. She's good at some things. Or she's better at some things than I am, for sure. And we'd like to build a name for this place as being a, a really a national center uh, for robotics. Uh, bedside assistants are incredibly important. While I'm sitting at the console, I need somebody qualified there at the, um, at, the, at the patient's bedside. Scrub techs uh, and the nurses, I can't tell you how important these folks are. I mean, literally I have their away time on my calendar and you know, if critical people, team members are not there, we literally don't do surgery uh, that day or don't do robotic surgery. And the circulators and perfusionists, uh, I was telling Missy, one of my perfusionists, quite honestly, yesterday in the operating room, she is quite literally the best perfusionist that I've ever worked with. And I wasn't just trying to make her feel good. It's just, it's actually true. And I've been at, you know, some of the world's best places. Um, this, is, uh, this is some data from the Mayo Clinic uh, where they showed that the cost of robotics was either less than or equivalent to... Um, uh, to open surgery. There is a learning curve of about 100 cases for um, a surgeon, a new surgeon doing this and their team, uh, but it can be shortened with good preparation. Uh, it'll be interesting because we, we, when we look at the first case, 100 cases we do here versus the last 100 cases I did, we're actually going to write a paper eventually and describe the team learning curve. That it's not just the surgeon, but the team. And I think this is a valuable concept that hasn't been published yet. Now, we did a bunch of um, simulated cases, uh, so-called mock cases, and a lot of people kind of rolled their eyes. What are they doing, mock cases? But within about a case or two of this, my team didn't question at all because there's a lot of choreography. These operations are a lot like a Broadway show. Everyone has to know what they're doing. And here on the left, you see my team at Jefferson um, when we were doing simulated cases on the right. Uh, was New York Presbyterian Cornell, where they had never done any minimally invasive surgery, much less robotics. And um, we were trying, you see a simulator there for the end of balloon where we arrest the heart, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, I, you know, I've, I've started a total of five robotic programs and I intend for this to be my last. And, and I'm very lucky to have a great team here. Now this is, I'll show you a video of robotics. So we're on, um, we're basically uh, gonna go on bypass here. We've, we're removing the pericardial fat pad. We're sort of in the right armpit area. These are pericardial retraction sutures. In this case, uh, we weren't using the end of balloon. We are using something called the Chitwood clamp. And uh, I robotically put that catheter in the ascending aorta to deliver cardioplegia. <clears throat> and again, this was all through the eight millimeter ports. And now we're gonna open up the heart. So the heart is arrested. Uh, it's still and relatively bloodless as you can see and we're going to uh, expose the mitral valve. For those of you who have done mitral valve surgery, I can tell an amateur from a pro immediately uh, upon entering the left atrium because the amateur starts looking at the valve, the pro exposes it first. And this, this valve is what I call a fibroelastic dysplasia valve, which actually is what scares me. You know, cardiologists think Barlow's are the ones to be scared of. Those are the easiest to repair. These valves that have uh, in this case, a commissural prolapse with really a paucity of mitral valve tissue. These are the ones that can, that can humble even the most experienced uh, mitral surgeon. But you can see that you have a lot of dexterity. We're able to sort of test the valve here. There was still a little prolapse. Those are the papillary muscles. So I'm gonna put in a neocord and uh, these replace the cordy uh, tinnity. Now, neocords are nothing new. They were invented in the 1970s 
a guy named Alain Carpentier, sort of the father of robotic surgery. Here I'm closing a cleft. You can do lots of stuff. Now, there's a big revolution of percutaneous stuff coming down the pike. Uh, and I think eventually this can probably be done uh, with a catheter system, uh, but not anytime soon. Now, that's a sizer there. And you notice the sizer was a piece of paper. That's because a normal sizer won't fit through the, for the uh, ring that we put around the valve, won't fit through the eight millimeter port. And that kind of gets a gasp at a lot of national meetings. Here we're closing the left atrium. And I don't know how many people you're aware of this sort of barb suture called a V-lock, uh, but it's uh, very unique. Um, we were the second group in the world to use it. And again, it's, it's something that's used every day in other specialties that I learned from my friends and other specialties. So there's a lot of benefit to being humble and learning, learning from others. We put a pacing wire in and, you know, I'll skip the rest. Uh, Habib talked about the national effort that we've had in um, around 2014. I got the impression that robotic cardiac surgery was waning. Some of the traditional leaders in the field were, were winding down towards retirement. Um, a lot of the young folks had been really prevented from doing it by older surgeons that didn't think robotics and milliinvasive was the way to go. And so one of my mentors became, um, Joe Bavaria became the president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. And I said, Joe, I think, I think we need to do something about this because I think this is not important for our field, but it's important for the country to, and the world to have this technology so that patients can recover more quickly. Sternotomies are just not gonna carry us where we need to be in the future. And he agreed with me. And so we started the Robotic Cardiac Task Force with the Society of Thoracic Surgeons um, where my co-chair, Dr. Joe Duraney, who was the chief at Mayo Clinic, and I partnered up. I was the workhorse, and he was the political guy. He's, he's, a, he's a great guy and a great mentor. And uh, we put on this series of robotic cardiac surgery symposia and workshop, most recently actually here in Norcross, which is an intuitive training facility because people wanted more, more hands-on during covid uh, I switched gears and made an online course so that still exists. And, um, uh, you know, uh, so I've tried to do more than just help my patients or my institution. I've tried to make this more accessible throughout the United States. And it's actually really, really growing. I just got back from um, the mitral valve conclave, which is part of the AATS. And uh, there was a growing number of robotic uh, presentations. We presented three cases there. Um, but I was just impressed at, there was a whole session on robotics. And um, so it's, it's really starting to grow uh, again. And uh, we also started these fellowship, advanced fellowships. Randy Chitwood, uh, who actually trained Karen and uh, is a mentor of mine from afar, I guess, really the father of robotic heart surgery. Uh, he, with the AATS, started an advanced robotic fellowship. I started the um, Thoracic Surgery Foundation uh, uh, robotic advanced robotic uh, surgery fellowship for uh, you know practicing surgeons, and I've turned it over to Gene Grassi, who is at uh, NYU Langone. So one question that comes up is, what sort of procedures do we do? Obviously, mitral valve repair. We do replacements, tricuspid valve replacement, mazes. In fact, the case we have today, we're going to do a mitral valve repair, tricuspid valve repair, maze, left atrial appendage closure. Um, we do pacemaker lead. Placements, atrial myxomas are actually a great way to do this. The patients recover very quickly. ASDs that can't be closed with closure devices. Robotic cabbages are not my favorite, but Karen is expert at them. Uh, they require a lot more patient than, patients than I have. I, I suspect she has more patients than me. 
TCAB is uh, a more advanced form of robotic assisted cabbage where you, you don't even make a thoracotomy. Uh, aortic valve replacements are something that we've started doing. Uh, and that's a growing area of interest, VSD, septal myectomy for hypertrophs. We've done at least two of those, I think, since here. And then double, even triple valve replacement replacements, as well as foreign body removals. I once removed a bullet from the right ventricle uh, with the robot, which is sort of interesting. This is the TCAB, and this is one of my patients. Um, and um, again, I don't do these very often, and I hope to turn them all over to uh, Karen. But, um, but, but it's a great operation when done well. Um, and I guess the video is not playing there. This is uh, another interesting operation, robotic cornea and roofing. Uh, for whatever reason, I've become a national referrals uh, recipient for uh, patients with myocardial bridges where they uh, compress the, uh, um, the LAD. And I partnered with Glenn Henry, who helps to tell me which one of these really need to be fixed versus those that don't need to be fixed. There's a lot of sophistication. I think I've worn Glenn out on this because these are pretty tough cases to, to sort through. But, uh, but I think we've, we've done a number of these here uh, with some very good outcomes. And then there's uh, robotic uh, aortic valve replacement in the interest of time, we'll skip that. Uh, robotic lead placements are a good operation. You know, the uh, EP guys will put these into the coronary sinus very nicely in most cases, but sometimes they can't. And this is an operation that takes me about 10 or 15 minutes to do in most cases. And so, um, you know, has, has a lot of value. Most importantly, we can get those leads in the correct place. Most EP guys will tell you that surgeons will often put them in the wrong place because it's easier to put them anteriorly, whereas really they need to go laterally at the base of the heart in order to get the best electrical impact on the heart. And the robot makes that easy to do. And then lastly, you know, I wanna mention the military activities that I've done, not, not to brag, but to have you understand um, the mentality of the military surgeon. So there's a few things about military surgeons. First of all, they're almost uniformly uh, uh, doctors of service who will never put their ego ahead of the patient's well-being. And I find that to be uniform and something that I learned there. In fact, if you look back at the history of cardiac surgery, a lot of the founders especially were um, military surgeons. John Gibbon, who I mentioned before, did the first open heart case, was a military surgeon. DeBakey, uh, uh, Frank Spencer, um, uh, who actually trained Alan Wolf, the, the guy that I preceded here, uh, and, you know, really a, an icon of a surgeon. And so why is that? Why, why did all these World War II uh, veteran surgeons start the field of cardiac surgery? Well, it wasn't, um, it wasn't just a, um, uh, it wasn't just incidental. The reason is, is the big thing about war surgery is there's no old guys in war surgery. You get over there, you're it. So in my three tours, I was the most senior doctor, much less surgeon on site. And this was months out of training in general cardiothoracic surgery. And so you don't have anybody telling you, well, you can't do this. You can't figure this out. So, you know, when you're, uh, when you're doing, you see me there doing a craniotomy, 
you know, in the States, they'd say, well, you can't do that. You don't know what you're doing. Well, actually, we did many, many very successful craniotomies. Why do we do that? Because there was no neurosurgeon available. That's another story. Why does a country of our magnificence not have a neurosurgeon in the entire country of Afghanistan? But they didn't. And we had to learn. And it turned out it's not that hard to do, especially if you have someone hovering over you saying you can't do this, because it turns out you can do a lot of this. So I think these guys came back from War II and they said, hey, we can do heart surgery because they had been told up to that point, heart surgery wasn't possible. And that sort of innovative attitude uh, really is partly why I've been able to go as far as I have in terms of, um, you know, bringing uh, robotic heart surgery forward. So thank you for having me. I'd be happy to take any questions that you have. Um, if you ever need me, this is how you reach me. And um, thanks, thanks, thanks again for the opportunity to come here to this great uh, community and hospital. Uh, where I've been uh, very pleased uh, to be embraced and supported in ways that I've never really experienced in my career. So thank you. We can take questions. Does anybody have any questions at this time? Okay, I, I want to see if um, I see Karen and Kyle. I know Clifton had an appointment this morning. I don't know if he made it back. Um, well, that was an amazing talk. Um, so um, just while we get others to come up with questions, um, you, you put down a list of operations that you think robotics can approach. Right. Um, and, and I'm asking, I ask you a difficult question, right? Because it's a moving field. Um, there's interventional cardiology, there's general, there's medical therapy. But if you were to put your, um, you know, your crystal ball eyes on and say, okay, 10 years from now, what percent of the cardiac surgery that we'll be doing then could be addressed robotically? Sure. I think it depends upon the procedure, but I think if you if you take all all heart surgery, it's less than five percent. I think it probably will settle out around ten or fifteen percent, is my guess, because there's some procedures where it's not applicable, and those are actually some of the hardest discussions that I have. Is a patient comes to me and they have in their mind um, that they could be a robotic surgery candidate, and they're not, and you know I spend my time reassuring them that. Another way of doing it is not the worst thing, you know, in the world. And I think learning to have those conversations is important. And so in those conversations, what I tell them is I say, what, what is our priority? What, what should be our priority for this operation? What do you guys think the number one priority for heart surgery should be? Anybody in the audience? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. To survive the experience. And you know, sometimes the patients start laughing. Well, of course I want to live, but it's not a given. You know, right. you look at uh, their at, at heart surgery. You know, there's there's do, people that do die after heart surgery. You look at um, you know the first guy to land on the moon. Okay, first guy to land on the moon, Neil Armstrong. Did you guys know he died after a simple coronary bypass? They pulled his pacing wire. He bled and died. This is a guy that landed on the moon. So heart surgery is serious business. And our first goal should be to have them survive the experience and with minimal complications. Our second goal is to fix their problem and fix it durably. Our third goal is to do it in the least invasive way possible, you know, without compromising safety or quality. And I think that's really the key to it. 
So I'm never going to do a minimally invasive operation if I think it's going to, you know, compromise safety or quality. And I think there's going to be a role for an entire tool belt, whether it be a transcatheter approach. And, you know, I work really well with Ronnie Ramadan. Uh, you know, um, we just had a case where I referred him a transcatheter aortic valve and he thought, oh, this is not a good case because he looked at all the different parameters and kicked it back to us. So um, I, think, I think the future is really not any particular type of procedure. To answer your question, I think the future is a, a, an entire tool belt of procedures and a team that kind of decides what's the best option for them. Much like in, uh, in cancer surgery, you know, the tumor board, mm -hmm. uh, where you select the best treatment option for that particular patient. And ro but robotics will be a, a significant part of that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's absolutely well said. Karen? Um, I was going to, Sloan, we're, we have the um, luxury of having intuitive right down the road. So I think if you can talk to everyone about the importance of partnering with industry and what that brings to the hospital itself, as far as research, innovation, and how that's going to open doors for other specialties in the hospital. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the, the industry relationship thing is interesting because it, it gets controversial because, you know, they treat doctors more and more like congressmen or women that, you know, they don't want us to have, get too close to industry. And I understand that because we never want to make a decision on a patient based on some profit motive at all. We never want to go there. That's against our, our code of ethics. On the other hand, it's industry that produces the technology that we need to provide advanced care. So those relationships are important. For instance, one of the projects I worked on that illustrates that is um, I, I worked with uh, Google and Johnson Johnson to build a surgical robotic system called Verb Surgical. And uh, literally on the campus of Google in, uh, in California. I mean, that, did you guys know that Google at one point was building a surgical robotic system? I mean, that's kind of crazy, right? But I was there and you know, what does that do for us? That, as an institution, that allows us to potentially have access to technology uh, early on, but also to be able to judge technology. So I've got relationships with virtually all the new robotic systems coming out, including the one in India, because, you know, I want to make sure that I can always get the latest and greatest. Um, although to some degree, it's a little bit like golf clubs, you know. I'm pretty sure that, you know, an expert uh, pro golfer could beat me with a set of clubs from Kmart. <laughs> I think there's another great question. I, I just want to double click on that whole concept of relationships, um, not just with industry, which I think you're absolutely right. Within cardiology, cardiac surgery, vascular surgery, a lot of the innovation has to happen hand in glove. And, and I think we've all kind of really you know, taken that to heart. Um, I also want to say that as an institution, Northeast Georgia Health System is extraordinarily invested in that relationship. And in fact, as you all know, um, the organization has recently launched the Northeast Georgia Health Ventures, um, which is really designed to help um, bridge that gap with us, uh, not only to um, sort of maximally um, utilize those relationships with industry, but potentially to develop new intellectual property with those relationships. And for us as a healthcare system to, um, you know, to be on the forefront of that and eventually even monetize it um, so that your intellectual contributions actually come to fruition. So um, I think we've got a great NGHV uh, group and I want to make sure that I connect you 
uh, with them so that you know that uh, that's an opportunity. Is that uh, Jamie? Yes, uh, thank you for a great presentation, Sloan. So in the past, I've had high-risk patients undergo hybrid procedures like a minimally invasive limit to the LAD and PCI to the right. Uh, do you uh, still see the um, possibility of doing this with minimally invasive uh, with robotic surgery, or do you see the, that you can achieve complete revascularization robotically? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of concepts there. Uh, one is, to answer your question, yeah, hybrid procedures with either a valve or a limit LAD plus stents is, a, is extremely viable. And I think Karen is a, is a big champion of that. Uh, and certainly on the valve side, I am. Now, sometimes what happens is say they have a 70% right coronary lesion and a mitral, I'll go and do a robotic mitral. And then we would traditionally think, okay, now it's time for the stent. And then the cardiologist will come to me and say, well, based on the COURAGE trial and other things, a stent's not even needed. The patient's got an asymptomatic lesion and maybe we don't need to treat it. Uh, but I, I think it's a very, um, a very valuable concept. Now, the second thing though I would caution you on is that uh, robotics and mentally invasive generally will not lower the risk of a procedure, okay? So uh, the ideal candidate for robotic mitral valve repair is Kyle Thompson. <laughs> it's not the 80 year old with liver disease. Okay, it's a young, younger, healthy folks. Now, it doesn't mean we can't do them on those high-risk patients. And I probably do more high-risk robotic cases than just about anyone in the United States. Um, but there, there really is no survival benefit to those patients or even morbidity benefit. Uh, there's early recovery. So you can think of robotics as providing an early recovery for the procedure, but it's not gonna lower the risk of the procedure. So one of the contraindications to robotics would be a patient that's too high risk for open surgery. So what happens when I've started robotic programs and I've started five, believe it or not, including this one, uh, is that initially a lot of the cardiologists think, well, I'm gonna send all the, you know, very high risk patients his way. And that's actually not the kind of patients that we normally look to do uh, because of that. Now, if it's a frail 85 year old, we just did one 85 years old. Yeah, there's some benefit to her, you know, recovering more quickly but I don't have any delusions that it's going to reduce the risk of that operation. Uh, I hope that answers your question. And I'm wondering if, if Karen wants to make a comment on that, because to your point, the, the whole coronary revascularization is a slightly different ball of wax. Can Suzanne, can you grab the mic for Dr. Gersh? Yeah, coronaries are a little bit different. And I try to put it in this perspective that if you have an anatomical abnormality of the mitral valve, we know it needs to be fixed. Mm -hmm. You've got to go in and physically alter the mitral valve so it's functional, whether you do a sternotomy, a thoracotomy, or, or five, eight port incisions. The thought process is broken valve, you got to fix it. Coronaries are a little bit different. Where do we really need to revascularize this right coronary artery? Does this make sense? Do we really need to tag a vein graft to the second obtuse marginal artery. Does this make sense? So we have to rethink the paradigm of coronary revascularization because right now the thoughts are sternotomy, do five vessel bypass, bypass everything. Does that really portell an improved longevity or improved quality of life on every single patient? So hybrid revascularization approaches takes, we know the durability of the IMA to LAD. There's nothing better than it on a revascularization period, dead stop. We can't even have a conversation beyond it. So if we can provide an IMA to LAD, do we really need to put vein grafts to every single vessel in this 85-year-old's heart? Probably not. 
right now there's only a handful of us on the planet who do coronary revascularizations that are minimally invasive or robotic. So intuitive surgical took away our platform to do multi-vessel, totally endoscopic coronary artery bypass TCAB. They took away our stabilizer to stabilize the heart and able to do a bypass with the heart beating. So now in order to do multi-vessel, totally closed chest revascularization, you have to arrest the heart. And that's sometimes tricky in people with coronary artery disease because they have peripheral vascular disease, abnormal arteries. It's not very easy to snake a balloon up their artery into their uh, aorta to occlude their aorta to stop their heart. Not all of those are going to happen to these coronary people. So partnering with industry to make certain that they know that there is a market for this stabilizer, which Sloan and I at nauseam pester them to death, give us the stabilizer back, give it back to us. But their argument is there's only 10 of you on the planet, maybe, who do this. So you can see that we are trying to increase the awareness of minimally invasive revascularization. So we can do more than one or two vessels. But in the process, we have to collaborate with our cardiologists and say, let's just think this through. Do we really need to do a five-vessel bypass? Yes or no. So we have a shared interest in determining what is reasonable for each respective person. That kind of makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that was extraordinarily well said, and I, and I think the 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 background to uh, Jamie's questions on that is that you know when you think about revascularizing coronaries, we know that if you're presenting with acute coronary syndrome, whether it's a STEMI or a non-STEMI, that there's no question that revascularization improves survival, right? But if you're presenting with stable syndromes, you know, stable angina, shortness of breath, and you've got multiple blockages. That's not that clear, right? In fact, there's the recent um, ischemia trial suggested that revascularization compared to medical therapy does not improve survival. In some cases, I mean, in most cases, we know it improves symptoms, it improves quality of life, it improves all these other things. Um, but that's where, whether you do it completely surgically in the future, or whether you use drug-eluting stents and other vessels, and I agree with Karen that if you've got a complex LAD lesion, and Karen um, can place an endoscopic left internal mammary to the LAD, that's really the game changer. If you can revascularize the LAD, we can put drug-eluting stents in other arteries if necessary. Um, but um, also medical therapy has completely exploded, right? It used to be, it was kind of aspirin and statins practically. Now there's eight different classes of anti-atherosclerotic therapies that arrest the progression of disease in other vessels. So the whole paradigm, as Karen says so well, is completely shifting and we are on the cutting edge of making those decisions. And that's why it takes a, a team to do it. We do have two questions online. Um, first one comes from Dr. Egelum. Could you talk to us about opportunities to collaborate with Kyle for minimal invasive robotic LVAD implants and how that can set our program aside from all others? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, Ugo, and, and I would say to that, that Kyle and I have already been talking about using the robotic system to sew the outflow graft, which comes out of the LVAD into the aorta, into the aorta robotically through the right chest, and then having Kyle do put the actual pump through a mini thoracotomy on the left side. Now that's been done with a thoracotomy on each side. I don't think it's ever been done with the graft implant uh, uh, done totally endoscopically. 
but we are we are actually actively pursuing that operation uh, as we speak. Thank you. And then uh, the next question comes from Holly Jones in research. She says, thank you for an outstanding talk and for your leadership. We're so glad you are here at NGHS. What is the value of engaging in clinical research in your area of expertise? Yeah, so most of what I do is either clinical research or industry, you know, device development research. And by clinical research, what I mean, so uh, a lot of it is retrospective uh, case reviews that we do. Um, sometimes it involves trials where uh, Karen and I are actually looking at doing uh, an AFib robotic trial here at some point. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunities there. I do believe that uh, there will be uh, new tools coming out. For instance, one of the trials that I'm interested in starting here is a single port uh, robotic mitral. So there's a um, DaVinci SP or single port and it's currently not approved for cardiac surgery. In order to launch that trial, I actually have to get a FDA individual device exemption, which is a whole application. And then we have to launch a trial. And um, I'm hoping to do that here soon. Uh, so that's a good example of what you're talking about. There may be new, new other new systems that come online uh, that we will probably be involved in. Uh, doing clinical trials to prove the efficacy of that system uh, compared to the DaVinci, but lots of, uh, lots of opportunities there. Well, listen, um, if any of you wanna catch Dr. Guy or Dr. Thompson or Dr. Gersh, they're still around. Um, I just wanna thank you for giving an outstanding presentation, but also more importantly, for bringing all this innovation and opportunity for our, to our community and our system. So thank you. Thank you. Herbie. All right. Very good. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, man.